Amen. Well, thank you for leading us uh, in worship and uh, giving us a chance to celebrate this morning. And, you know, the um, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church is, is always a challenging Sunday for, for me personally. It's the, there's a mixture of, of mourning and, and, and just heavy-heartedness, but uh, at the same time, there should be rejoicing. And there should be celebration. That's what the scripture tells us to do. And so if you're feeling like that maybe was an odd uh, set of songs to sing, uh, didn't seem appropriate, here we are celebrating while our brothers and sisters are dying, suffering, being persecuted. Well, the scripture says, Jesus himself said that those people are blessed and that they were to rejoice and be glad. And if they're supposed to rejoice and be glad, how much more should we be able to rejoice and be glad? And what a great uh, reminder this morning through those songs of the hope that we have in Christ. And, and I'm so thankful for also in the sweet providence of God in our study of uh, Philippians, we have come to uh, the perfect passage for IDOP Sunday in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And we're going to see that Paul, who was being persecuted, who was in fact in prison for the cause of Christ, was not feeling sorry for himself. He was not mourning. He was rejoicing. And he wanted the Philippians to rejoice too. And he would have wanted us to rejoice as well this morning. And so let's read this passage, Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And let's see how we're to respond um, to the persecuted church, um, whether it's someone else we know or if it's ourselves. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul and his example for us. He will help us today to know how to think and feel and respond when we consider the, the pain and the persecution that so many of our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing every day for their commitment to Christ. Thank you for sovereignly putting Paul in a situation where uh, he would have to respond to his own set of circumstances and his own persecution, his own suffering, but do it in an exemplary way. And so help us to learn from him today, to go to school on him today, and that we would truly be able to rejoice with him today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as I already mentioned, uh, one of the most famous statements that has ever been made in the history of the church is that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And ever since the, the church of Jesus Christ began, Satan and evil men have sought to destroy it primarily through persecution. But persecution always backfires. And rather than destroying the church, God uses it to grow and expand the church and and cause the gospel to expand to further territories and new territories. I think the best example of this is found in the book of Acts, which chronicles the the history and the birth of the, the church and the growth of the church and how it expanded from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. If you remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told the disciples to wait there in Jerusalem and they would receive power from on high. The Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, starting there, and then in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And it's interesting what God used to spark the growth and expansion of the church. If you turn to Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 5. This is in the context of Stephen being martyred for his faith in Christ. He was the first martyr of the church in chapter 7. But notice what chapter 8 says. Verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. In fact, he was the one that all the people that were going to stone Stephen or were stoning Stephen, they had left their coats at his feet. In other words, he was the one observing. He was the one maybe in charge of that um, martyrdom, that murder. Uh, and so he was there observing, overseeing it all, and they were dropping their coats at his feet. It says, on, on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. So uh, it started with Stephen's martyrdom, and then all hell broke loose, if you will, on the church in Jerusalem. But notice, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so it seems like, hey, this is a bad situation. The, the, they're trying to arrest us and, 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 and uh, torture us and kill us. And so we have to flee for our lives. But notice, verse 2, Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, and he put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went and hid in a cave somewhere to lick their wounds. Is that what it says? No, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria, to Judea and Samaria, and became, began proclaiming Christ to them. Flip over to chapter 11, just to see this pattern of persecution fueling the growth and the expansion of the, of the church and enabling the gospel to spread throughout the world. Chapter 11, verse 19, so 
then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, they're still talking about this, Luke's still talking about this several chapters later, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. And so now the, the persecution continued to propel them further and further away from Jerusalem, and they made it all the way to Antioch, which was the doorstep of Asia. And if you know anything about the church in Antioch, it was the first missionary sending church. The, the first missionaries were sent out from the church in Antioch, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 13. All that to say that, that persecution was the catalyst for the growth and expansion of the early church, and it enabled the gospel to spread throughout the entire world. In fact, the greatest expansions and revivals throughout church history have occurred when persecution is the greatest. One memorable example in recent years would be the underground church in China. When communism engulfed China back in the late 1940s, Christianity was outlawed and missionaries were forced to leave. They kicked them out, kicked out all the missionaries. And from a missionary's perspective and from a Christian's perspective, that's a bad deal. This is not good. What's going to happen to the church? Well, the church went underground. It went into hiding, and it reproduced like crazy. And years later, when missionaries were allowed to return to China, they were amazed to find millions of strong, healthy Christians, all because of persecution. Again, this is just one of many instances where God used for good what Satan and those controlled by him meant for evil. And that's the the paradox of persecution. Arresting and and torturing and killing Christians ends up producing more Christians. And, And no one understood this paradox better than the Apostle Paul, who was the mastermind behind the persecution of the early church. And the more he persecuted the church, the more it flourished, and the more that infuriated him. And then, as you know, one day he was on his way to Damascus to arrest more Christians and bring them back and and, and prosecute them in Jerusalem. And on that road to Damascus, he was knocked to the ground by a flash of light, and he heard a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, did he say the church? Christians, what did he say? Why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, well who are you? (laughs) And he said, I'm the Lord Jesus, who you don't believe in and who you have been persecuting. And as you know, the rest of the story goes, Paul was radically saved. I mean, go figure, right? Not Not even Paul himself could have ever conceived how Christ could take the greatest persecutor of the church and make him the greatest preacher of the church. And that's exactly what happened. And yet Paul soon found out himself that through the prophet Ananias that God had sovereignly chosen him to share Christ with the Gentiles, which would result in much suffering for the cause of Christ. That was his um, commissioning service, by the way. Oh, Ananias, I just want you to know, the Lord told me to tell you, you're going to suffer a whole lot. That was his commissioning service. And from the moment Paul began proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, he experienced a whole bunch of suffering and a whole bunch of persecution. He suffered for the cause of Christ 
as much, if not more, than any other Christian who has ever lived. And yet, we learn from his letters that it didn't matter to him what suffering and persecution he endured as long as it served to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul expressed here in his letter that he wrote to the beloved believers in Philippi. That they had heard about Paul's arrest and imprisonment. They were naturally concerned about how it was affecting him. And more importantly, I think they were concerned about how was it, how was it affecting his gospel work. I mean, if Paul was locked up and chains, then, then the progress of the gospel must have surely been hindered, and this seemed to be a huge setback for the cause of Christ. And so Paul wanted to reassure them that the exact opposite was taking place, that in God's sweet providence, his imprisonment was in fact furthering the gospel, not hindering the gospel, it was furthering the gospel. And what appeared to be unfortunate circumstances actually had provided him some unprecedented opportunities to share Christ with people that he would have never been able to reach if he hadn't been falsely arrested and falsely accused and now in prison in Rome. And for all that, Paul rejoiced. And he wanted everyone who was part of the fellowship of the gospel there in Philippi and us, we're a part of the fellowship of the gospel as well, to rejoice with him. Bottom line is, Paul's joy was not in his circumstance, it was in Christ and in people coming to know Christ. That's what he cared about most, seeing the gospel advance and spread throughout the world. And based on his own personal testimony, he knew better than anyone that the persecuted Christians was the God-ordained means to advance the gospel and for people to come to Christ. He was a fruit of persecution. He was persecuting. He saw what happened. And next thing you know, he was convicted at the, I think, the the death of of, of Stephen and how gracefully and how confidently and how peacefully Stephen died. I think that stuck in his head and he couldn't get it out of it. He couldn't get the image of how does a man die like that with such faith? And this just began to work on his conscience. and, 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 And so he knew that persecution was the catalyst for the growth of the church. He had experienced it firsthand in his own life. And so in these verses that we're looking at this morning, Paul rejoiced over how God used two unlikely catalysts to advance the cause of Christ. Two unlikely catalysts to advance the cause of Christ. First of all, the first catalyst, an unlikely catalyst, was his chains. His chains. And Paul rejoiced that Christ cause progress because of his chains. The second unlikely catalyst was his critics. His critics. He rejoiced that Christ's name was proclaimed in spite of or as a result of his his critics. And so let's look at these two unlikely catalysts this morning and I trust they'll encourage our heart. First of all, the, the catalyst of Paul's chains. Paul's chains. Notice he says in verse 12, now I want you to know brethren that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Uh, Other translations say, I want you to know that what has happened to me has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, remember, it's been 10 years since Paul planted this church and four years since they last saw him when he was able to visit them. And and a lot has happened since then. Uh, If you're curious to read it uh, firsthand, you can Maybe just make a note, Acts 21 through 28 
uh, describes really the circumstances or all that happened to him. That little phrase is a pregnant phrase, and it's, it's all that happened between Acts 21 and Acts 28 uh, from the time he left Philippi to the time he ended up in prison in Rome. And so now he was writing while he was under house arrest in Rome, and, 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 and Paul's goal had always been to preach the gospel in Rome. Why? Well, this was the key city of the world. This was the epicenter of the world at the time, and he knew if he could penetrate Rome with the gospel, he could impact millions and millions of lives for Christ. And again, it was on, Rome was the doorstep of Spain. So you go from Antioch to Rome to Spain to Europe is where it was his end game. And so Paul's plan was to, to travel to Rome and, and do what he had done in every other city to preach in the synagogues and preach in the marketplace and win people to Christ and plant churches, and, and yet God had other plans. You remember that while Paul was in Jerusalem, dropping off that uh, offering for the poor believers there, the impoverished church there, he was accused of desecrating the temple and bringing a Gentile into the temple, and the Jews dragged him out of the temple and began to beat him, and they were going to beat him to death until some Roman soldiers intervened, and they took him and, and arrested him for his own safety, his own protection. And not, all, not long after Paul had been taken into custody by the Romans, it was leaked to the commander that a group of 40 Jews were plotting to murder Paul. And so that commander moved him under the cover of night to Caesarea, where he remained for two years, and got caught up in the political process of, of Caesarea, where the governor of, of Caesarea, Felix, he couldn't decide what to do with Paul, and he, he left him for his successor, Felix. He didn't know what to do with him, and so he did. Uh, he just decided he wanted to just send him back to, to Jerusalem for trial. Well, Paul knew that would have resulted in certain death, and so that's when Paul played his Roman citizen card and said, no, I, I want to appeal my case before Caesar. And so they said, okay. And they sent him off to Rome. Well, on his way to Rome, you remember he, he was, a, he was a, involved in this horrendous shipwreck, almost lost his life along with all the uh, fellow sailors and, and prisoners that were on board. And after three months uh, of waiting on the Isle of Malta, Paul finally arrived in Rome. Again, not as a preacher like he had wanted to, like he'd expected, but as a prisoner. And he was, again, spending two years, had to spend two years under house arrest, uh, chained to a, a Roman soldier waiting for his day in court before Nero. Now again, put yourself in the Philippian sandals with um, really ancient um, means of communication. Uh, they probably got bits and pieces of what was really happening to Paul. They probably hadn't gotten the full story, and uh, they'd most likely heard rumors of all the terrible things that had happened to him, and they were so concerned for him that they had sent Epaphrodites to, to minister to him, see how he's doing. Uh, they were probably wondering whether or not he was still in jail. Um, had, had, he, had he gone to trial yet? Had, maybe he had been martyred. Maybe he'd already died for his faith in Christ. And they didn't know. And then finally, they got this letter from Paul. And after greeting them and encouraging them, he confirmed their fears that, yes, the reports that you've heard are true. I'm in prison, and my future is uncertain. But guess what? I'm rejoicing because despite being the victim of an unlawful arrest and imprisonment, and despite all the other things that I've had to endure, 
God is sovereignly using these things to further the gospel in ways that are above and beyond anything I could have expected or even imagined. The word progress there, it says that I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. It's an interesting word. It's a, a military term in, in, in the Greek that, that referred to a group of army engineers who would go before the troops to prepare the way for them into a new territory, and they would hack through dense trees and underbrush to clear a path. They would erect bridges over rivers and, and over gorges to make a, a straight and smooth path for the army. And so Paul's likening the, the advance of the gospel that these circumstances have acted like this, this, this corps of engineers that has gone out before me, and, and, and it just totally cleared the way, it opened, busted open wide the doors of opportunity for the gospel. And Paul mentioned two specific ways that his being in prison helped the progress of the gospel. Number one, it exposed unbelievers to Christ. And number two, it inspired believers to share Christ more boldly and aggressively. Notice in verse 13, he talks about how his circumstances provided greater contact with unbelievers, greater contact with unbelievers. He says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. That word imprisonment literally is chains, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. Paul called himself in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20, an ambassador in chains. He was the one who told us that we were to be ambassadors for Christ. Well, he was an ambassador, but he was in chains. In Colossians, uh, we see that uh, he was chained uh, here, even though he was under house arrest. It sounds like, oh, that's kind of a cushy deal, house arrest. I wouldn't mind that. Well, not if you're chained to a guard 24-7. We know that from Acts chapter 28, the last few verses. He talks about the conditions of this house arrest, and he was, he was chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And the guards shifted every six hours, which meant Paul could witness to four soldiers every day. And if you do the math, that amounts to 3,000 soldiers in the course of two years, assuming no guard was ever assigned to him twice. I don't know if he had favorites or, hey, let me, let me hang out with Paul today. I'm not sure what was going on there. But, but talk about a captive audience. I mean, the guards, probably some of those guards felt more like the prisoner than Paul did. I mean, who was chained to who here? I mean, imagine yourself as one of those soldiers chained to Paul. Their job, their specific task was to listen to every word he said, to watch every move he made. He was under surveillance. And so they heard him pray. They listened to the many spiritual conversations he had with, with all the visitors that came to see him. They overheard him share the gospel probably, uh, you know, uh, countless times, and they, they may have heard him dictate these letters to the churches. They noticed how consistently he conducted himself with integrity, and they, they, they witnessed his joy, his patience, his, his gentleness, his courage, his conviction. 
And so after spending time with Paul, it was easy for them to see that he, he was no ordinary prisoner. He, he was definitely not the criminal that he was being made out to be. He was not a political rebel or some traitor. And I think that's what it means when he says, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everybody else. They, they knew I wasn't deserving of this sentence or these circumstances that they knew I was there for the cause of Christ. And so over the course of, of those two years, while under house arrest, he, he developed these close relationships with many of these soldiers, and, and some of them repented, and they placed their faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, this would have never happened if Paul had been, been bitter and, and angry or sat there complaining or feeling sorry for himself. I mean, that's typically the picture you have of somebody in prison, especially when they've been falsely accused and, and they're rotting away there in jail. They've they got a really bad attitude. And they got an axe to grind against everybody and everything in the system, and that, that was not Paul. He was very gracious. He was very humble. He was happy. And I believe these soldiers were moved by Paul's joyful attitude. Just, just like the Philippian jailer, the, what in the world? I just put these guys in the deepest, dark part of this, this dungeon here, and they're singing praise to God. I don't get that. And then the earthquake happened, and, and he thought, oh, man, I'm in trouble. I'm going to just kill myself and follow my sword. And, 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 and Paul said, no, don't do that. And we're all still here. And again, demonstrating, hey, we're not... We're not bad guys that are going to try to take advantage of you and escape. We're, we're right here, man. We're not going anywhere. And what did, he, what did the Philippian jailer say? What must I do to be saved? I want what you have. And I'm sure that was happening time and time again with these soldiers in, 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 in Rome that were watching Paul. Now, these, these were no ordinary soldiers, soldiers, soldiers excuse me, uh, notice that it was the Praetorian Guard. This was the elite group of soldiers that were handpicked to guard the palace of the emperor. This was, these were the official bodyguards of Caesar. This would be maybe like the secret service. Talk about getting in on the inside, right? Having an inside connection with the upper tiers of leadership. And so Paul's imprisonment provided him contact with these highly influential soldiers and something he would have never had as a free man. And what's more, through their influence, Paul gained access to share Christ with everyone in Caesar's household and most likely Nero himself. Notice it says the whole, the whole praetorian God and to everyone else. And look at the last chapter of Philippians chapter 4, verse 22 he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. We're talking Caesar's own, Nero's own family members, possibly, and definitely his cabinet, those who were serving alongside him in his household, had come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because God had put Paul in, under house arrest in Rome. So everyone was aware of this extraordinary prisoner named Paul who was in chains for following Jesus Christ. I mean, the irony of it all. We, we, we saw, we witnessed great irony this last week with our election, did we not? I mean, completely not what you expected. And, and, and then you just, it all came together like, whoa, I did not see that coming. And, and that's exactly what Paul's going, I did not see that coming. One of my favorite 
stories from church history is that of John Bunyan. You may know John Bunyan as the author of, of Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, hopefully you've read that. If you've not, uh, put that on your top five books to read before you go to heaven. Um, it's an excellent, excellent book. But how did that happen? Where did that come from? Well, John Bunyan was a pastor, was a preacher uh, in 17th century uh, Church of England, and he was a very powerful preacher, he was a very popular preacher, but the, the, the leaders of the Church of England did not like him. And so in order to silence him, they threw him into jail. And yet even there, he refused to be silent, and he began to preach in the jail courtyard. And every day he would go out uh, into the courtyard, and, and a large audience of prisoners would gather, and, and also citizens from the town of Bedford, where the prison was located, and, and even the surrounding area, they would come out in droves to the prison wall, and they would listen, they would stand outside the wall to hear him preach as his voice projected over the wall. Well, the prison guards didn't like that, the authorities didn't like that either, and so they silenced him verbally by placing him deep inside the jail where no one could hear him, where he couldn't preach at all. And yet in that silence, he spoke the loudest of all and to more people than he could have possibly dreamed of because it was during those 10 or 12 years that he was in that inner prison that he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which next to the Bible has probably sold more copies than any other book that's ever been written. And so here's Bunyan's opponents trying to stop his preaching, and they may have done that for a few years, but that jail cell served as a launching pad to extend Bunyan's ministry to the ends of the earth and for all time. They didn't see that coming. And so what do we learn from this? Well, God can and will use all sorts of negative circumstances to put us in contact with unbelievers so that we can share the gospel with them. I'll never forget one of our members had a freak accident at his ranch and had to go to the emergency room. And I remember in the province of God, I was driving back from the city and I was able to just fly in there and talk to him and, and spend a few minutes with him and pray with him. And I'll never forget him laying there you know, on the gurney in the emergency room saying, Ken, I don't know why I'm here, but I can tell you what, there's going to be some nurses and doctors who are going to hear about Jesus. And I was like, praise God. Maybe that was the only reason why that all happened. That necessarily wasn't any discipline on that man's life or, or anything to help him be more like Jesus. I'm sure that those could have been true, but, but maybe that was redemptive suffering that God had some people in that hospital that needed to hear about Jesus. And so I'm going to put one of my chosen saints, I'm going to put him there so he can be my mouthpiece. That was this guy's perspective. He was seeing this as an opportunity to share the gospel. My circumstances, not what I would have hoped for, to be laying in the emergency room this Friday night. But you know what? I'm trusting that it's going to turn out for the greater progress of the gospel. And so Paul, first of all, talks about how his circumstances provided greater contact with unbelievers. Secondly, it provided greater courage to believers. That they provided greater courage to believers. And the second way that Paul's imprisonment served to advance the gospel was among the believers in Rome. Now, the gospel had spread to Rome about 15 years before Paul ever arrived there. Uh, Some of those who had 
come to know Christ on the day of Pentecost, had likely traveled back to Rome and led their family members, their friends, their co-workers to Christ, and a church was planted there in the heart of the Roman Empire. And uh, as we know, Paul had previously written a magnificent letter to them, the church in Rome, we know as Romans, which he expressed his boldness in sharing the gospel. And in the very opening chapter of, of this great letter, this is what Paul said, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, now Paul was proving that statement to be true, that he was not, he was not ashamed of the gospel. He was, he was being willing to undergo all sorts of persecution and even, even, even going to prison for preaching the gospel. And again, we need to understand the dynamic that was going on in Rome at the time that Paul was under house arrest. Hostility towards Christianity was increasing rapidly in Rome under the reign of Nero. And Nero was notorious for taking Christians and impaling them on stakes alive and sticking them in his garden to light up his garden parties. He was using Christians as human tiki torches. That was what he thought about Christians and Christianity. So needless to say, you wouldn't want to be real open about the fact you were a Christian in Rome. Um, They would have been afraid or at least reluctant to openly share their faith in Christ. But seeing Paul's example encouraged them and motivated them to, to fiercely proclaim the gospel to others. They, they realized, that, hey, if Paul can go on witnessing for Christ in the midst of his persecution, so could we. And notice what it says here in verse 14. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more, what? Courage to speak the word of God without fear. And so many of the Roman Christians were, were inspired by Paul's example to boldly preach the gospel no matter the cost, and they were infused with this fresh courage to share the good news of salvation with as many people as possible. One commentator said it this way, as they saw how God protected him and blessed his ministry, despite persecution and imprisonment, their courage was renewed and their boldness and zeal intensified. His strength became their strength as his example touched them through the Holy Spirit. The impact of one faithful life revolutionized and energized the entire church. Courage is contagious. Probably one of the best examples of that happened a few decades ago in that epic story we know as Beyond the Gates of Splendor, the story of Jim Elliott and his four friends who went down to the jungles of Ecuador to reach um, the primitive Aka Indians um, who had never had contact with, with other human beings, and they were notorious for their violence. And if you know the story, the day that the missionaries went in to make contact with them, they all agreed that even if they were attacked, they would not defend themselves. They would not shoot. They had a gun in the plane with them, but they weren't going to use it. And the reason why they decided not to do that is because they said this, quote, we're ready for eternity, but they're not. 
Well, you know what happened. They were all brutally killed and, and left to die there in, in that riverbed. And yet God used the courageous death of these five men to cause one of the greatest surges in missionary work in modern history. I mean, people came out of the woodwork and said, sign me up for missions. I want to go overseas and do what these guys did. It inspired a generation of young people to give their lives away for the cause of Christ. I think that's the same effect that seeing the courageous commitment of today's persecuted Christians should have on us. When we watch that, a video like this, a story of a family that, that left the comforts of South Africa, I told Kelly, I, I feel like we've met so many couples just like them and, and the couple of times we've had the privilege of ministering in South Africa and, and, and just a sweet couple there in a very safe, comfortable country, unlike the rest of Africa, and yet they were willing to give that all up to go serve in a very dangerous place and put their life at risk. How should we respond? That, that, their courageous commitment should, should inspire us. Their, their example should motivate us and mobilize us into this mighty army that marches forth and preaches the gospel in our community. I mean, you can go to Walmart today and tell somebody about Jesus and you don't have to even worry about getting shot or killed. See, we should, being exposed, one of the things for me personally that, 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 that why I love being exposed to the persecuted church around the world is, is, is it causes me to be more fearless in my witness for Christ. And it should transform us from being bashful believers to be bold believers who unashamedly proclaim the gospel to everyone we meet regardless of what they might say or do or what they might think of us. I mean, let's be honest. That's, if you said survey says why Christians don't share Christ, why we don't witness the way we should, top answer probably is fear. It really comes down to fear. We're concerned about what people will think of us, what they might say to us, what they might do to us. Jesus said to his disciples, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's who you're to fear. Don't fear man. Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, he said to his young disciple Timothy who had, a, had a, a propensity to be timid or fearful, he said, for God has not given you a spirit of timidity but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. What a great exhortation for all of us this morning. Suffering and persecution always results in the advancement of the gospel in two ways. It provides greater contact with unbelievers and it provides greater courage to believers. And so that was the first unlikely catalyst that advanced the cause of Christ was, was Paul's chains. But notice he goes on to talk about his critics. His critics. Paul also rejoices. He not only had to deal with the fact that he was in chains, he also had to deal with criticism. He had to deal with enemies and people didn't th that didn't think highly of him. And so he rejoiced that, you know what? Hey, Christ's name is being proclaimed. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, some to be sure, this is the sum of the, 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 the uh, brethren, most of the brethren 
who are, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and trites, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So thankfully, there were some of these people who were emboldened to preach Christ. They loved Paul, and they were willing to take a stand with Paul to ensure that the gospel didn't fail to be proclaimed while Paul was in prison. So they, they wanted to pick up the slack, if you will. They, wanted to, they, they were part of this fellowship of the gospel, and they were all part of the same team. And they were going to fill up where, where things were lacking because of Paul kind of had to, he was benched, if you will. Uh, he wasn't out on the field, and so we need to get in there, the 12th man, right, and, and, and make, make a difference. And they knew that he was appointed for the defense of the gospel. There's no mystery. No, there was no confusion in their minds they, why he was in prison. No, we know why Paul's in prison. We know that God has sovereignly raised this brother up to defend the Christian faith and establish the, the credibility, the legitimacy of Christianity so it would be a recognized religion in the Roman Empire. And so they're like, you go, man. We're behind you. We're supporting you. Thank you for taking this one for the team, and we're praying that God would use you to, to defend the gospel in prison. Well, of course, Paul was very encouraged and blessed knowing that there were these kind of people supporting him and, and, and serving alongside him and partnering with him in the gospel. But as is always the case, there are always some who weren't as encouraging, um, who weren't as supportive. And notice he says here, some, to be sure, I know, I know it's true, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. And, and you know, I love this about Paul. He was very vague here. He was graciously unspecific. I mean, he could have said some things that would have made us think really bad about these people, whoever they were, but he didn't. He just kind of gave a generic description of them, that there was these jealous, divisive folks who sought to stir up trouble for him. And you say, well, what was he talking about? Well, I think he was implying here that there were some leaders, there were some preachers, there were some Christians in Rome who were prideful, they were territorial, uh, they considered him a threat to their prominence, their influence, and much like the Pharisees who had handed Jesus over to Pilate out of envy. Pilate knew that. He could see, it, see right through there. Oh, yeah, this guy is just causing trouble. No, you guys are just jealous of this guy. That's why you want me to kill him. And in a similar way, these people were apparently jealous of Paul's popularity, his success, and they bitterly resented how his ministry maybe eclipsed their own. Again, we're speculating here, reading between the lines, because Paul again, was vague, but maybe they got their noses bent out of shape when he arrived in Rome and began receiving all this attention and taking away from their following, oh, the Apostle Paul has come to town, and, and, and maybe they overheard others praising Paul for being such a, a gifted uh, preacher, a godly man, oh, he's so anointed, he, I mean, I could listen to him for hours, you know, my pastor kind of bores me and puts me to sleep sometimes. I, I don't know, I read this, and it, it may like it does me, sound astonishing to you? How, how, I mean, this doesn't even seem to fit in the same sentence. How can you preach Christ even from envy and strife? Seems like an oxymoron. How can you preach Christ with these wrong motives? Well, I don't think it's as 
astonishing as it may sound or you might think. Now, I'll just speak from my own experience as a pastor, someone who's in ministry, that, that I know what it feels like to be jealous of other men in their ministries. That's a battle in my own heart. And it's, it's hard sometimes when you, you hear others getting praised or getting the attention that you might desire when it seems like God is blessing someone else's ministry more than your own. And, you know, I enjoy going to pastor's conferences. They're, they're fun. They're, 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 they're enjoyable. Um, they, they often are refreshing. But honestly, I kind of dread them at the same time because most of the conversations, there's, it's just all about, hey, how you doing? How's your ministry? And how many people come to your church? And, and, and that's just what Pat, we get together and we're, we're geeks. You know, that's what we talk about. Pastors, you know, you sit down and you talk about your church. You talk about your congregation and you talk about this and that. And, and so, and you really know behind all this is that, 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 that everybody's kind of, you know, jockeying for position in their heart almost um, there's envy of those who are doing well, and there's probably even some concealed delight for those that aren't doing so well. And sometimes I leave feeling drained and, and dirty for this, just this constant comparison that goes on in my heart, which is nothing but pride and selfishness, which leads to this unity, which Paul is going to address in chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. But notice back in chapter 1, he says, Son, be sure, preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Verse 17, the former, he's talking about them, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. There we go. That's what we're talking about. It's all about motives here. Listen, it's not enough to have the right beliefs. You have to have the right motives. You could be doctrinally sound, but not pleasing to the Lord if your motives are impure. You need both. And I often wonder how much of what I do in ministry is purely motivated out of a desire for God's glory, or is it really a desire for my glory? Do I really care about Christ's reputation, or do I care more about my own reputation? We need to examine our motives to make sure we don't fall into this category of those who Proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. They wanted to kind of pour salt on, on Paul's wounds here, and they hoped he would be maybe discouraged or disheartened, knowing that their ministries were flourishing, they were, their ministries were thriving while he sat there in chains. They wrongly assumed that Paul would be jealous, like they had been. But by the grace of God, he was above that. Notice what he says. Verse 18. What then? What then? Uh, translated means, so what? Who gives a rip? Big deal. What's the difference? What difference does it make? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, whether in wrong, for wrong reasons or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So what? Who cares? Big deal. What difference does it make if people have impure motives? So what if people are overly consumed with themselves? Who cares if people are taking unfair shots at me? Who cares? So what if they say or believe bad things about me? It doesn't matter to me. All I care about is that people are hearing about Jesus Christ. Paul was selfless. 
He didn't care about himself or his own glory or his own reputation. It didn't matter what people were saying about him or doing to him. I mean, he was not petty and he wasn't taking any of this personally. The gospel is what mattered most to Paul. And as long as the gospel was being clearly and accurately preached, guess what? That guy was happy. He was, he was exhilarated. He was excited. He was grateful. Notice here that Paul didn't confront this group, whoever they were, for preaching a different gospel or another Jesus like those in Corinth and Galatia. And he had some pretty straight up things to say to other groups that preached a different gospel or another Jesus. Let them be anathema. Let the curse of God be on you. Don't listen to these people. That's not what he said here, and that's why I don't think that he was referring to to the Judaizers who we're going to see him condemn later in this letter, in chapter 3, for preaching a false gospel of salvation by works. These were the legalists who were adding works to salvation, but he he, he doesn't mention that, and so this was a different category. This, these were some, this group was something different. And I think Paul serves here for all of us as a good example in regards to how we think and talk about preachers or ministries whose motives for preaching the gospel seem suspect. And you listen to them and you watch them and you think, you know what, I think they're into this for the money. I think they're into this for their own fame. Right? You know of men in ministries that you question this, the, the purity and sincerity of their motives for preaching the gospel. But the fact is, they're preaching the gospel. I know this may sound shocking, but there was a time when I was listening to a well-known televangelist who's a complete heretic... And, and has, from my understanding, not the best lifestyle. And yet, I heard him preach the gospel. I was shocked. I'm listening. Well, he, just, he just preached the gospel. He just shared the gospel. That was a biblical gospel. And it caught me off guard. What, do I, what am I to do with that? How am I supposed to think about that? Paul's like, you know what? That guy might be a knucklehead. But he preached the gospel. And you can rejoice in the fact that maybe somebody heard, saw past all the impure motives and, and all the flash and the, the bad theology. They heard the truth of the message of the good news of salvation and how a person can be saved through faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is also a good example of how we view other churches or denominations that might not have the same exact doctrinal convictions or philosophical views as we do, but they get the gospel right. But we're so quick as Calvinists to write off Arminians. Oh, they're just, they're Arminian. What do they know? They, they, don't know? they don't get God's sovereignty and salvation. Well, but if you listen to them preach the gospel, they're preaching the gospel. And someone could actually get saved listening to the gospel message that they're preaching. And can't we rejoice in that? 
and say, praise God for that? I came across a story I'd heard a long time ago, but it was just refreshing to reread the story. And uh, I, I just, I have to read this to you this morning because it's so cool. Um, you all know who George Whitfield and John Wesley are, right? Uh, two stalwarts of the Christian faith uh, back um, in England years ago. And uh, let me just read this account. It's, it's just fascinating. It's a matter of historic record that the two great English evangelists, John Wesley and George Whitfield, disagreed on doctrinal matters. And you know what doctrinal matter they disagreed on? The doctrine of election. Calvinism and Arminianism. And they, they, they shared some pretty strong letters with one another, trying to correct each other's theology in regards to God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and salvation. Both of them were very successful preaching to thousands of people and seeing multitudes come to Christ. It is reported that somebody asked Wesley if he expected to see Whitfield in heaven and the evangelist replied, no, I don't. And he said, well, then you don't think Whitfield is a converted man? You don't think he's saved? And Wesley said, well, of course he's saved. Of course he's a converted man. But I do not expect to see him in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of God and I so far away that I will not be able to see him. Can you not rejoice in that? Grace and humility. The author concludes, though he differed with his brother in some matters, Wesley did not have any envy in his heart, nor did he seek to oppose Whitfield's ministry. So what does Paul say? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. He didn't say it once. He said it twice. I'm serious about this. I am rejoicing double time. Despite all the difficulties and all the obstacles that I'm facing, have faced and facing, I'm ecstatic that the gospel is continuing to go forth. Again, Paul was more concerned. I mean, how, how do you get this joy? That's, that's the question. Well, I want to be like that. How do I get that kind of joy, that ability to rejoice in the midst of unfortunate circumstances? Well, Paul was more concerned about the progress of the gospel than he was about his circumstances. That's the bottom line. He didn't care about his comfort, didn't care about his success, didn't care about his privacy, didn't care about his reputation. It made no difference to him whether he was in prison or not, whether he was being maligned or not, whether he was mis misunderstood or not, as long as Christ was being proclaimed. Again, he wasn't sitting around feeling sorry for himself or seeking the simply sympathy of others, which a lot of us might be doing in his similar circumstances. He, he was rejoicing. And again, another commentator said it this way, absolutely nothing could steal Paul's God-given joy. He was expendable. The gospel was not. His own privacy and freedom were incidental, and he cared nothing for personal recognition or credit. Neither the painful chains of Rome nor the even more painful criticism of fellow Christians could keep him from rejoicing because Christ was being proclaimed and his church was growing and maturing. Amen? What's the takeaway for us this morning? 
I hope you want to get to that place in your life where you can say, you know what? I rejoice. In this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. How's that happen? How do you get there? Well, I think we can all experience the same kind of joy if, like Paul, we don't care what happens to us as long as Christ is glorified and as long as the gospel is advanced. It, it means that the gospel comes first in our lives before anything else. That's what matters most. D.A. Carson says this about this text. Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advancement of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. As Christians, we are called upon to put the advance of the gospel at the very center of our aspirations. And then he asks the convicting question, what are your aspirations? To make money? To get married? To travel? To see your grand, grand, grandchildren grow up? To find a new job? To retire early? None of these are, are wrong, necessarily. And they're not to be despised. The question is whether these aspirations become so all-consuming, so devouring, that the Christian's central aspiration is squeezed to the periphery or choked out of existence entirely. In other words, we get so focused on these earthly aspirations that we lose sight of this one great aspiration. Kent Hughes follows up Carson's words with these words. He said, the centrality of the gospel is the great question and challenge for us. Is the gospel first and foremost in our lives and in our church? We each have our calling in life as electrician or teacher or mother or plumber or financial analyst or lawyer or musician or fireman. But whatever our calling, the gospel must be first. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, so encouraging, so convicting all at the same time. Lord, I pray that we would experience even just a little bit of his joy and rejoicing. That, Lord, you would help us to get to the place where um, all the petty things that typically get us down in life just wouldn't matter in compared to uh, the great task of sharing the gospel with people in our families, people in our neighborhood, people at our schools and workplaces and around the world, that that would be the first thing we think of when we wake up. It'd be the last thing we think about when we go to bed is how we, how we can be used by you um, in good times and bad times um, to be a light for Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would um, just grant us grace as we seek to apply uh, these truths to our lives today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.